0: You are listening to the Art Cram Podcast with Mara and Baker.
1: My favorite piece of art I've seen this week was your improvisational marionette dance in the living room yesterday.
0: (laughs) I was feeling myself, yeah. (laughs) Not literally, but you know, in my mind. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, it was, I really enjoyed it. It might it it harkened back to um, the Insync video. Uh, you may recall where they were literal marionettes cutting themselves from their strings.
0: Oh, I, I don't recall that. I was just going for a real modern dance floppy doll vibe.
1: And that's what it was. I'm just for a reference point for our younger our younger listeners. <laughs> <laughs> don't anybody, know the Insync video. Anybody who listened to Insync is in their late thirties now, probably. <laughs> So Actually, that is our younger listeners. According to our demographics, we have one person in Norway between yes. 45 and 55. Shout out to whoever you Shout are in Norway. Shout
0: out to that Norway listener. God Woo.
1: bless you. Yes. Thank you, for, thank you for listening. I don't know how you found us. You probably were looking for something else, but I appreciate you nonetheless. Let's get into the case first by discussing the piece of art and the artist.
0: All right. View of Auvers-sur-Oise is painted by Paul Cézanne sometime between 1879 and 1882. Represents a key step in Cézanne's career as he transitioned from his early, darker work to a post-impressionistic style. Cézanne may now be considered one of the most important artists of the 19th century, paving the way for modernism and gaining followers of the likes of Matisse, Picasso, and Kandinsky, but he was ignored and even rejected for most of his career. His first solo show wasn't until the age of 56, which I say, good for him for hanging in there until his 50s to get a first solo show because sometimes that's just how it works out.
1: I had read that he tried to get his art in the annual, uh, what is it, Exhibit de Paris, the Paris Salon, mm-hmm. the annual Paris Salon, which is like the big deal to, to be recognized Yes. It was kind of a big deal. You got into that every year. They
0: decided what art was important, but they were very traditional.
1: And he didn't get in. No. For a long, long time until basically like his friend got him in or something like that.
0: Well, they rejected a lot of paintings that are masterworks now. While Cezanne was struggling in his 30s to gain a toehold in the artistic community, the artist decided to move his whole family to Auvers-sur-Oise, so a region in France, at the suggestion of his dear friend and fellow painter Camille Pissarro. Um, it was Pissarro who pulled Cézanne towards nature, away from expressionist painting, the palette knife excesses of Corbet, and what art historian Roger Fry called artistic madness. Well, after he left town in early 1874, Cézanne would continue to paint landscapes inspired by Auvers-sur-Oise. One of these was the painting that ended up in the Ashmolean collection, which we're going to talk about today.
1: For me, researching Cezanne just made me crazy about Pizarro. How do you say it? Did you do you have a pronunciation key for Camille Pizarro?
0: Well, get, get the computer to say uh, Pizarro. Uh, uh,
1: Camille Pizarro. Pizarro. Camille Pizarro. Camille. Pizarro. Camille
0: Pizarro. Pizarro. What do you say? Camille Pizarro.
1: Do we have the correct pronunciation? Well, you're asking me? Kami <laughs> Pizarro. I came here to ask you how to say Kami Pizarro. Kami <laughs> Pizarro. Kami <Camille> Pizarro. Kami <laughs> Pizarro.
0: Kami <Camille> Pizarro. <laughs> I like that little panda's
1: doing it. Kami Pizarro. Kami Pizarro. Kami Pizarro. Hey, hey Pizarro. Kami
0: Kami hey. Pizarro
1: came 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 you pizzaero you Pizarro. Pizarro. the my entire uh exploration into saison ultimately just made me become an enormous Gummy pizzero fan all right. i love pizzero bass. all right i'm Did, excited I, I i can't say I had heard of him, or I'm sure I read him on a placard looking at a Cezanne or a Picasso or a Matisse or anybody who was part of that group. You would have
0: seen one of his paintings somewhere we've been at some point.
1: Yeah, He definitely doesn't get as much press as all the younger kids in that group, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But you said earlier something about Picasso, um, or Picasso, I think, referred to Cezanne as the father of us all or something like that. But then... Cezanne references Pizarro, Pizarro, God Pizarro, yeah, as the father of us all. So it kind of all, not it's not that it all started with him, no, but it all of it owes a tremendous debt to Pizarro, and he was apparently in, Pizarro was incredibly generous. I think probably with his supplies as well as just his time and in creating this community and really being a mentor to the, to these kids who would wind up completely outshining him historically in terms of, well, I guess maybe in popular art, Mm -hmm. the more hardcore artists or academics, I'm sure
0: artists' legacies. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I absolutely uh, fell in love with Pissarro. Before we get into actual, the actual theft itself, I have some pretty cool news and things I'd like to share with you this week. Oh, please if, share. If you're ready. I'm I am ready. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to start with um some of my art picks of the week yeah. that came out of this research or some actual recent art crime and auction news?
0: Ooh, 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 ooh. Okay, news. News? Okay.
1: Yeah. All right. My first news item. The uh the trove. Do you know what the girl trove is? You know what it is, you might not know the name. Does no. the name sound familiar? No. Do you remember that old dude who had stashed like 1,500 works of art in his apartment? Oh, yeah. And it yes. was like Nazi loot. Well, they didn't know that it was it was a bunch of looted art. They didn't know what was looted. It was
0: passed what- to him from his father. Yes. Yeah.
1: And he was caught. I think he was trying to travel across.
0: He's trying to un- unload some of it, but not all of it. Right. Yeah. And like
1: that like that was his sole way of... He was getting broke, and that was like his sole way of providing for himself. Was yes. he was trying to market some of these stolen things? So, check this out. As of January thirteenth, two thousand twenty-one, the investigation concludes with few def- definite answers. Wow! Only fourteen out of the fifteen hundred artworks were th- found in the gorilla, um trove. Have been formally identified as Nazi looted art. So wow. there was only fourteen. After all of that, I think we learned about it right when he was caught. Yeah. And I think there was an assumption that there was a ton of Nazi looted art in there.
0: Well, his father owned a gallery. Is that right? Yep.
1: Okay. Look at you. So, um, of the more than 1,500 works of art in the trove, around 300 were cleared in the investigation as they have been found, uh, to have been owned or commissioned by men- members of the Gerlitt family before the Nazis took power. However, uh... Around a thousand still remain uncertain. There's a large gray zone of where these came from or who they might belong to. Mm-hmm. so oh, I thought that was interesting. they just so for all intents and purposes, the investigation into the Nazi looted art is over. Wow. Fourteen out of the fifteen hundred artworks were identified as Nazi looted art and returned to some member of the family hmm. so
0: yeah, that's very minimal isn't it so then what happens to the vast majority of this collection
1: reclusive art collector Cornelius Gerlitz left his entire trove of orcs concealed for decades to the uh, Museum in Bern Switzerland Mm. so that's where everything everything that's legitimate is is there I think all of it was there while it was being investigated but everything that was legitimate remains at the Museum in Bern Switzerland so I thought that was an interesting wrap-up to the case yeah the other piece of news. This is this is a new stolen art case in New Zealand, and what I love about this is that it introduced me to one of the most popular artists of all time in New Zealand, and uh, I thought you'd you would find this interesting. So, on December thirtieth, police recovered an art hall of more than thirty paintings and prints during an operation at a, a Cor- Coramandel home. I, I don't know if this pronouncing that right, but the Coromandel Peninsula is on the North Island of New Zealand. It's almost due east of Auckland. Like if you take a ferry, it's like a two-hour straight ferry ride over, or it's like a two-hour drive kind of around the Horseshoe, around the Firth of Thames is the name of the body of water. Uh, so the 30 or so pieces were found in Coromandel were believed to have been stolen in residential burglaries over the past several months. The subject was in custody. Okay, but that same week, so the big deal, the big steal that somebody grabbed that same week was by this gentleman, C.F. Goldie. Can you see this here? Yes, roughly? I can. Okay. Portrait. The artist's name is Charles Frederick Goldie, C.F. Goldie, typically referred to C.F. Goldie. Uh, born 1870, died in 1947. New Zealand artist, best known for his portrayal of Maori dignitaries. He's considered one of the most important artists in New Zealand and he made it his mission to go into the homes of Maori and do portrait paintings of obviously, you know, a lot of dignitaries, but then a lot of just common Maori people. He was very concerned that, as he should have been, that the Maori were going to be sort of a lost people to New Zealand and he wanted to capture them in painting. So...
0: Was he an Anglo... Yes. Kind of artist.
1: Yep. They're considered extremely valuable and important. And I think the most recent one that went to auction went for about $490,000. Mm. Another one went for almost a million. So th- there is, depending on which articles you read, the painting that was stolen could be sold at auction between $500,000 and a million dollars. Yeah. So the stolen painting Sleep Tis a Gentle Thing and it is an older Maori gentleman who looks like he dozed off in his chair. His perhaps. expression is interesting. Yeah.
0: Or like he's mid-speech about something.
1: He's asleep. He's asleep? Yeah.
0: He is asleep. That's, that's the title.
1: <laughs> Sleep Tis a Gentle Thing. I think...
0: Uh, so is he posing for the artist? And he's like, uh, I'm out. Yeah. You can You can paint this but this is boring.
1: That's exactly my assumption. Is it this older gentleman. It was his nap time. He was posing. He fell asleep, and the artist decided, let's let's capture him just like this. So C.F. Goldie, G-O-L-D-I-E. Uh, links will be in the show notes for this episode. Uh, I, I thought that was interesting. I just loved going down the rabbit hole. I loved getting the alert that there was an art theft in New Zealand, digging into it, <laughs> finding that there had recently been the same week and, you're, then, you're and
0: then we hit the alert. Ooh.
1: My antennas went up. I'm like, ooh, yeah. there's a it's a, it's a it's a series of, of of related art crimes in New Zealand. This is gonna so they don't seem to be related. The timing is just coincidental. Uh or
0: so it seems right now. Right. But still a spat of art crimes.
1: Yeah, and the the general feedback from people in the know about the artwork was that. The person who stole it had no idea what they stole. Like, there's no way that they realized, which seemed, hmm. I don't know. Considering well, that the You
0: said the one sold at auction. Exactly. Recently, so,
1: yeah, I, I I, wonder, and maybe just because I want it to be more of a dramatic story, but I wonder if somebody knew exactly what it was worth. Yeah. And is it, you know, somehow going to be used as some kind of bargaining chip or collateral for some nefarious Hmm. activities in new zealand
0: well and somebody knew this person had one or was it well that that's everything was taken
1: no they well the painting was stolen in like a cutlery set i I think the cutlery set was just like a
0: uh yeah that's a barely an add-on i mean it seems like this is targeted
1: yeah, I think they were like, "Let's take the painting." No, no, no. We got to make it seem like well, let's grab that silver. Yeah, ma- it down. make it seem like it was just we're just stealing whatever. So just grab some other silverware or something so that it doesn't look like we we're coming after the painting itself.
0: Yeah, I mean the silverware is not much of a haul. That's probably scrap.
1: So those are the two big um, news articles. There's a couple. Uh, I found a couple. Uh, the there was a copy of Batman number one from 1940. That uh, sold at auction and is the number two. Let's see, it sold for two point two million dollars. Wow! The top spot in the comics market remains a pristine issue of Action Comics one, featuring the first appearance of Superman, which sold in two thousand fourteen for three point two million. That's
0: a sharp looking cover. It is popping colors, strong yellow, red.
1: Yeah, number one spring issue Batman, the all brand new adventures of the of the Batman and Robin, the Boy Wonder yeah it's a very striking striking cover. okay, so that that was the news that I wanted to share that I thought might be of interest. Uh, do you have any um, art funds of the week that uh, any any art you would like to steal this week? Did you, did you come across anything? Well
0: I'm gonna leave it where it is, but I did like to ponder on it. It has to do it doesn't really have to do with our case, but it was painted in the town of Auvers-sur-Oise. And it's Van Gogh's um, painting of Daubigny's garden. So this garden is in the area. And Daubigny was really the father of Impressionism. And Van Gogh and a lot of people owed a great deal to him. Daubigny was dead, but his wife still owned the property. And Van Gogh painted it a few times before he died. So this is Van Gogh's last hurrah. He dies within months of doing this
1: what is in the distance is that like a castle in the distance or a church off in the center distance
0: I think they're houses it's really nice from the inside of the garden there's like irises and a little cat I think milling about
1: I like the depth of field of that particular photo speaking of depth of field
0: oh, tell me about (laughs) your depth of field
1: um, when we first talked about doing this podcast, this theft, this Cezanne theft at the Ashmolean was a genius, genius episode idea because it had brought me down. It's brought me down so many wonderful paths and connections between Cezanne, Pizarro, um, Matisse, Picasso. And then it brought me down the path of. Stereoscopy, and I'm saying that right because I looked it up. Some might say stereoscopy.
0: That uh, sounds silly. Stereoscopy.
1: Stereoscopy.
0: more Greek that way.
1: You're gonna love this. I'm so into this. I don't know. I hope <laughs> hopefully you will be too. So my pick of the week is a saison, and I chose the large bathers. Can you see this here? Yes. Yes. He did a number of um, paintings of of bathers. He never had models, by the way.
0: From memory, yeah.
1: All from memory. And what's interesting in this particular um, painting, The Large Bathers, um, other scholars have found and picked out these different women and how they are posed as statues, real statues that Cézanne would have seen where he lived or in Paris or his travels. So some of these women are based on actual sculptures By other artists that you would know the name of. Oh,
0: that's funny.
1: So in this particular one, the large bathers, you can see the trees are kind of bending. There's this kind of triangular view. And it just goes on. And there's sort of sections. You have the women. Then you have the water. And then there's people on the other side of the bank. And then you have... And it just goes on forever. So during that time period, have you ever seen one of these old Brewster-type stereoscopes? Oh Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So... If you've ever been to an antique store or generally an antique store or I don't know where else you would see these things, but you may see these stereoscopes where it looks like a little, like a viewfinder or what are they, what are they called when we were kids? We had them. Um,
0: yeah, I had a viewfinder.
1: Yeah, it was called a viewfinder, right? Mm-hmm. And so what it's doing is it's taking basically the same photo, but, um, one, w- the one on the left is slightly closer up. The, the version on the right is, uh, a wider view. And then when you put that into this little stereoscope, or the viewfinder, for those of you who remember viewfinders, your brain creates depth and almost gives you this 3D illusion. That happened during Cezanne's lifetime. And the person who came up with this first stereoscope, he couldn't find a manufacturer in England, so he had someone in France create these. And these became very popular at the time Cézanne was interested in new ways of modeling space and volume derived from having seen and enjoyed these stereoscope views that he was looking at. So that at.
0: altered perspective was in his mind. Yes.
1: So his uh, interest in new ways modeling space and volume derived from obsession of his era and from reading Hippolyte Taine. I'm going to say Taine or Tain. And the Berkeleyan theory of spatial perception. <laughs> uh, most stereoscopic methods. Present two offset images separated to the left and right eye of the viewer. These two images are combined to give the brain the perception of depth or three or three D. Right. So if you know knowing that now, when you look at this painting of the large bathers, it's so obvious. You can't ignore it. It's amazing. I just and I don't that stuff. I just love running into little facts like that. About time and place and influences and yeah. something like this.
0: Well, and a bit of technology, and it affects how he sees things from forever on out. I could, I could see how this would become a point of contention for other artists if they're feeling fussy about the painting process, which still is how some artists are now. So he's he sees ba- he uses a piece of technology, and it affects how he wants to paint. And I don't feel like that's too different from people painting from photographs or however their plein air process works, whether they do a mock-up sketch outside or don't, and then paint their landscape inside based on whatever materials they have. I saw a kind of a debate last week on Instagram where artists were saying, going back and forth about, you know, if it's basically legitimate to paint from a photograph, paint a landscape from a photograph. And one artist was like, I always paint better in my studio. Like, that's just how it is. And the other artist is like, but look at the color difference here, you know? And It's still, there's still so much judgment involved in people's process. But the process is unique to your brain. And sometimes you can't deny what your brain wants to do. And he wanted to paint kind of a fisheye bathing scene. And it's great, you know, and he's known for it now.
1: On that point, in the discussion you saw on Instagram, and bringing it back to the Berkeleyan theory of spatial perception, and if you'll forgive me as I paraphrase brutally the point that hippolyte tain was trying to make was that our ability to see three-dimensionally or see or notice that when we look out a window that the house that's 40 feet away is 40 feet away and the tree that's 60 feet away is 60 feet away and that the puget sound that we can see is however you know a mile away or something like that that those calculations are all built over time And it's all, um, it's all assembled information in our brain anyway. So it's not, we are not seeing the world naturally in the first place.
0: Oh, we're seeing it in brain layers.
1: Yeah. Oh, exactly. (laughs) Brain layers. We're seeing this in brain layers. And that, that was really his point. And so when you told me about the debate you saw on Instagram, it made me think of that conversation back then. And it also gives me the feeling of like, well, who cares? Like who yeah. ca- who cares what the source is? Who cares what the medium is? Like there's constraints and opportunities in all of them.
0: Right. Yeah. And how your painting turns out is up to you in the end. It's not the images you were looking at, the technology you are using. It's can or can you not execute the vision you had for your painting? Exactement. That
1: was... That was a hell of a sharing is caring portion of the show, <laughs> if you ask me. Uh, I've talked a lot. Is there anything else you want to share this week? I feel like I've already overshared.
0: My tea is delicious.
1: Your tea, you were drinking a the blue tea. Blue pea vine. The pea vines make it blue? Mm. Or the pea flower, pea vine flowers? The pea
0: flower. Mm, delicious.
1: Now, it's time for the case.
0: As the world celebrated the dawn of a new millennium in 2000, a thief broke into Oxford's Ashmolean Museum and stole Cezanne's View of a Versailles. It and the thief have never been found.
1: What? Yeah.
0: So, sometime after 1 a.m., New Year's Day, so. New Year's Eve has been popping. I'm sure it's very exciting at Oxford at New Year's. So while the fireworks are blasting, revelers are carousing in the surrounding streets. Y2K! Woo! Your computer's going to crash. A thief successfully carried out his plan to steal Paul Cézanne's view of Auvers-sur-Oise from the University Museum. Targeted. Indeed. Was
1: it the only thing that was stolen?
0: The only painting stolen that night. The only item from the museum stolen that night. Okay. In a room full of good picks, like good solid selection of anything to take that night, Cezanne
1: only. I'm no detective, but that sounds like it was a targeted theft. Indeed. How'd they get in? Let's let's start. Let's go.
0: Okay. The thief who broke into the Ashmolean on New Year's Eve carried out a professional, highly planned heist that many have likened to that of The Thomas Crown Affair. Okay, a movie or maybe a book, but a movie definitely, which I have not seen. Have you seen?
1: Uh, Didn't we see the original one with with Steve McQueen?
0: I haven't seen that, but you might have.
1: Okay, keep going. Okay, so
0: anyway, so it's exciting. The plan was meticulously executed using construction scaffolding at a nearby Oxford University Library. The thief climbed onto the roof and then hopped across several buildings to get to the museum. The thief then broke through a skylight, lowered... A rope into the gallery below and shimmied their way down. Very cinematic.
1: Dun, we must picture real style Tom Cruise. Panache. I'm gonna to picture Tom Cruise with shaggy hair doing this.
0: <laughs> but not so shaggy that it accidentally brushes the floor as he lowers to his lowers on his rope down to the floor. Or maybe
1: the sweat drips off the end of his Oh,
0: and it absorbs back so he doesn't, you know, throw off any sensors. No water sensors were uh, a set that name. The real evil genius of the plan was in their next move. As the thief entered the gallery, they activated a smoke canister and using a fan, brought a fan with them, spread a fog that obscured the view of security cameras. One of the reasons the thief has never been identified and set off the fire alarm. So they're kind of making a little bit of a noise and a fuss.
1: This, this is genius. Like this, this is absolutely how people should still still steal art
0: (laughs) if we were uh you know suggesting that was a good idea which we're not
1: we're not condoning it but if you're going to steal something you definitely should use a fog bomb or smoke bomb or something like that i i I didn't i haven't dug into i'm starting to get into the security of museums uh, because i like the tech like the gadgets they put on paintings or the water sensors or heat sensors and all of those things so i'm getting into the technology but I would bet, as somebody who's into technology, I would bet dollars to donuts. I don't know what, don't yeah, know what that means. But I'll bet dollars to donuts that it is still very, very difficult for a museum to determine, or museum security and, and alarm system, to determine the difference between fog and or fake smoke versus real smoke. Oh, heck yeah. So I'm sure there's been great advances of figuring out, like, oh, is this just some, like, canister smoke bomb versus, like an actual breach or something or maybe it's a matter of if there is smoke without some other alarm attached to it then that would be a cue that maybe Mm -hmm. this is a theft but a hundred percent even though this how long this is 20 years ago they did this or 21 years ago yep i say if you're going to steal art definitely definitely (laughs) use fog bombs or smoke bombs i think that was a brilliant move on their (laughs) part
0: well on anybody's part all right. So while most would consider tripping an alarm in the middle of a crime, a deal breaker, in this case, it bought the thief an extra couple of minutes. While security guards waited for the fire department to arrive, because, you know, they didn't know what it was, they couldn't go in, the thief was able to grab a Cezanne from the nearby gallery, shimmy back up the rope, reverse, reverse their w- roof hopping, and disappear into the surrounding crowd.
1: Can you, okay. This is well-coordinated, which leads me to believe that The preparation must have been well-coordinated. Oh, yeah. Meaning the physical activities to accomplish this. Mm -hmm. So
0: Well, not just anyone can climb back up the rope. I think you have a bigger, you know, pool of suspects about climbing a scaffolding and roof hopping, but up and down a rope, I would assume climbing the rope was more than 12 feet up. You know, it's like a gallery height ceiling, glass ceiling, like you had to climb up a rope. And you're carrying a painting with you at this point. Not a huge painting, but still, you're carrying a painting with you and climbing.
1: I have to believe that 21 years ago, leading up to the events of, of New Year's Eve when this painting was stolen, somebody in the town of Cambridge, probably some, you know, maybe before a before, uh, holiday break, there was definitely some stoner university students. Who were like sitting on a hillside somewhere smoking weed and somebody was climbing across rooftops or climbing ropes outside um just in preparation just getting like the physical just <laughs> yeah you know.
0: so this person had been seen practicing <laughs> somebody yeah there's they're just... like oh parkour oh good job parkour Dude,
1: look at that guy man he's just <sighs> climbing across the rooftops oh good for oh, him too, yeah man. looks like fun man yeah it looks like fun. and then 21 years later there's got to be someone out there who was like, oh yeah, that was weird. I saw some guy <laughs> yeah. practicing climbing a rope outside of the rec center or <laughs>
0: carrying a frame with him everywhere
1: huh. <laughs> It's clicking in so I'm sure the cops did a great job in investigating but that's the first thing that I would do is ask everyone in the neighborhood have you seen anyone doing some what appears to be practice <laughs> climbs yeah. or parkour on local buildings <laughs> okay
0: the whole heist took less than 10 minutes. By the time the authorities had cleared the building and determined that the only emergency was the empty space where the Cezanne had once hung, the thief was gone without a trace. And this was the Ashmolean Museum's only Cezanne painting. Oh! Yeah. That's it's sad. so harsh. It's sad. As the smoke cleared in the morning hours of the new millennium, detectives on the scene started looking at the case as a stolen-to-order job. The Cezanne was in the very same gallery as a Van Gogh, a Picasso, a Manet, a Monet and a Manet, but none of the other paintings were touched. So that's pretty significant. The culprit clearly had a mission when they broke through the skylight. The Cézanne may have been a target as one had recently sold at auction in London for 18 million pounds. So it was in the public mind that a Cézanne is worth quite a bit. This was a devastating loss as the on was part of a group of paintings donated to the museum by Richard and Sophie Walzer, who had come to the UK as German refugees fleeing Hitler during World War II. In giving this group of pictures to the Ashmolean, the Walzers were thanking the British people for taking them in at a terrible time, and particularly the people of Oxford. The painting is worth reportedly $4.8 million,
1: That's harsh. And One of the
0: most significant art heists in a in recent couple decades. And earning it a distinction on the FBI's ten most wanted art crime list.
1: And thus begun something they still say in Cambridge today. Only an Asholian would <laughs> steal from the <laughs> Ashmolean.
0: Do they say that? Yeah. Oh good. Well, you know, a lot of people have tried to steal from the Ashmolean. I have a list of other thefts and attempted thefts. Oh,
1: really? Just through, uh, since then or throughout the ages or until then? or keep, keep Before.
0: Before. So we have in reverse order here. So the Ashmolean was established 1683. It's considered the oldest public museum in the world, although I'm sure it was really limited to students for a long time. So there's no way just peasants were able to walk in and enjoy art, but be that as it may. Um, so their collections are massive, um, and they include Picassos, Da Vinci's, like hundreds of thousands of works. So the museum was targeted by thieves before in 1997. A gang tried to steal a priceless 1,100-year-old jewel made for Alfred the Great. Again, they did this whole roof-hopping, scaffolding business and snuck in through the skylight, but they failed at um, stealing the jewel.
1: Maybe they should get rid of the skylights. Just a well, I, thought. The
0: scaffoldings are real, apparently, easy to climb. So in 1996, two 17th century French bottles were stolen. And in 1992, there was a spate of thefts. French bottles? French bottles. Yeah.
1: Stole bottles?
0: You know, they were probably easy to get, easy to sell. A spate of thefts in 1992 around Oxford University. So security measures were stepped up at that point. But Greek vases, paintings, silver, 16th century including a 16th century painting uh were stolen by a visitor under his coat including a collection of jewelry worth 50,000 pounds was taken.
1: That's yeah so that's I guess that's the other way. To, to me that there's only there's only two ways left of stealing art. You come in through the skylight and you drop a smoke bomb
0: which is very cinematic and interesting.
1: Yeah, and you can get up to especially if you can climb that fast up to the top or yeah. have some kind of like cool um like data from the Goonies, where you can just kind of like <laughs> pictures of power Pitchers and get yourself of out of there. Yeah, uh, or or you just do the thing where you pretend like you belong there with the clipboard right. and you put the painting. you just your... staff. Yeah, yeah. And so there's just like so many of these other art crimes. No idea where it is.
0: Nope. No clues. No idea of the identity. Nothing.
1: Considering the the tax and the insurance implications of trying to own one of these masterworks in the first place. You might as well steal one rather than buy one. <laughs> yeah,
0: tax is pretty heavy. And, yeah. I mean, I guess it's really heavy in France. I don't know about UK, but I would assume it's pretty heavy.
1: And if they just went door to door in Switzerland and some like in Geneva or something like that, they would probably find everything that we're going to talk about on this podcast <laughs> series. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's not lost. it's just belongs to really rich people who don't want to pay taxes.
1: Well, I... I love this case because first of all, it is a very um cinematic way of stealing a piece of art.
0: Yeah, it's just I don't know if it could have been more exciting. Like we don't know anything about the before or the after heist, but the heist itself is very stylish. A lot yeah. of panache.
1: And to successfully accomplish that all within you said 10 minutes.
0: And to be quiet about it afterwards, like no boasting or bragging that's, you know, thrown them they didn't throw themselves under the bus by wanting to talk about it like executed like a pro apparently
1: and to to successfully do that in 10 minutes again it goes back to the amount of preparation some someone so you cannot get that prepared without doing some kind of like public parkour type activity
0: circus trapeze Yeah. yeah
1: or maybe i don't know maybe they went to a a more remote place to to practice running on rooftops or something. The or,
0: School of Cat Burglars somewhere in the south of France.
1: Yeah. Or ooh, this would be more fun if if we're gonna make a movie out of it. Is that the the person who was so rich who wanted the saison had built like a replica um, of the scaffolding of Oxford <laughs> in a remote location.
0: A movie set in their backyard to practice on.
1: Yeah they they did a they did a scale recreation. <laughs> Of the situation, and then demolish it all before the oh, actual before heist itself. Before
0: we get itself. to make the movie on
1: the set. Ah, oh. well, and, and the other reason that I loved it so much is because, um, I, I appreciate Cezanne more than ever, and he introduced me, of course, to Camille Pissarro, okay. who I'm now a- I absolutely adore. For, and also, if you if you see any of the self portraits or paintings, I think done of him. He just seems like a delightful old he's got the david letterman beard and he he just by all accounts he was a very generous and wonderful person so um the the way that this case brought me down the rabbit holes and connections of one artist to the next or um understanding how one artist impacted or supported another or references another as like the father of a group of other artists To me, this was a wonderful entrance into art crime, and then just art history in general.
0: Yes. Yeah, for a veritable who's who, this is a great case to start with.
1: And on a side note, the photo that I found of Paul Zizan, or the one I think this one's on Wikipedia too. (laughs) He looks like Jason Manzukis, who is Adrian Pimento from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Oh, he does look like
0: Pimento. (laughs) (laughs) He looks just like Pimento. a yeah. little, little wild-eyed.
1: Jason yeah. Manzukis, he's a asshole. Born in Nahant, Massachusetts. Nah-han. Nahant, beautiful coastal ma- Nahant, Massachusetts. Yeah, he looks like a asshole. So, if anybody out there is looking to cast uh, Paul Cezanne in some historical documentary, preferably one with a lot of humor in it, um, <laughs> yeah, <you> should... <laughs>
0: use the gifts he's been given.
1: <laughs> hire Jason Manzukis immediately. All right, I loved it. The assholeian who stole from the Ashmolean. Maybe that's the name of the episode. I don't know. Maybe it's a little much. But I loved it. Thanks so much, Mara.
0: Oh, I had one more thing to say. What? So the region itself is like a real magnet for artists.
1: Wait, like wait, what, a, what region? auvers
0: sur Oise. Like, everybody painted there. The train came to the region in 1849. So at that point, it was only an hour trip from Paris to this region. And artists started going up there. And one of the first to do it was your buddy, uh, Charles-Francois D'Aubigny. Do you not recall Mr. D'Aubigny?
1: Oh, I I loved him. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, because we saw that wonderful Impressionist exhibit in Edinburgh. And that was my my takeaway.
1: I'm like, you guys can all have Monet and whoever else. I'll take him.
0: Well, he was pretty much the first to move up there. He and Corot went up there, but um, D'Aubigny bought property, and he invited. He's the one who started inviting people to come up there.
1: See, it's the OGs who never get the... It's always like the younger ones who get all the... Mm -hmm. They get all the posters made that hang on college students' walls. Yeah.
0: And it was Dobini's example to paint outside that encouraged other Impressionists to paint outside.
1: It took them that damn long to just get out there and do some plein air. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So that... I like that it was technology, again, influencing how artists paint because the train took them out of town to this lovely pastoral village that... Everybody just sees it and wants to paint, and I'm still sure artists are going there today still looking at it and wanting to paint. So the train made that happen for them.
1: Yeah. I love how we wove in technology's impact on art and art history this episode as well. Hell of a job. Didn't even plan for that. That's how good we are. (laughs) All right, Mara. Thank you so much for the case. Thank you, Baker. Loved it.
0: Yeah, you too. Great work.
1: All right. Thanks. If you'd like to follow us, that's a thing you can do. On Instagram we're Art Crime Pod, on Twitter we're Art Crime Podcast. I would have loved to be an Art Crime Podcast on Instagram as well, but somebody's just sitting on it and they won't give it up to me. So we're <laughs> Art Crime Pod on Instagram, Art Crime Podcast on Twitter, and uh where else? We have Art Crime Podcast @blogspot.com. That's plenty. If you want to follow us, figure it out. Thank you so much for listening.
0: And if you listen this week, we will shout out to you next week about it because it'll be very exciting for for you and us both.
1: We won't know who you are because that's creepy, but we'll know where you live.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not your address. I just mean the country. Rough general area. We won't know your name.
1: Uh, We'll know what country you're from and then the 10-year age range you may or may not be. Yeah. And we would love to um, acknowledge that about you. We'd be excited. Okay. Until next time. Thank you. A